ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon, Selena Green with you on this Wednesday. Do you have solar panels at your place? Or do you ever consider using them to, say, shield your crops or provide shade for your animals? It's called agrivoltaics, and there's calls for more research into its potentials. And also in this next half an hour, carbon markets. They could be another source of income for farmers, but what are some of the challenges and concerns that really still need to be addressed? We've got to be careful about carbon markets because I think what's happened is the people that are meant to actually get the money are not getting the money as much as they should. You know, the, the brokers are actually achieving most of the gains out of the carbon markets. And in some cases, we're actually shifting deck chairs on the Titanic and not being serious. More on that to come. Don't forget my talkback number throughout the program is 1300 222 or send me a text on 0467 921. But first today, you may have noticed more solar farms popping up around Australia and they're quite often fenced off parcels of land used solely for that purpose. But there is growing research that's suggesting solar panels can coexist with grazing animals and growing crops and provide benefits to farmers. It's called agrivoltaics or agri-solar. Farm Renewables consultant Karen Stark argues more research is needed to make it a reality across Australia. So there's two styles in Australia. We've got um, already some large-scale solar farms that graze merino sheep under panels, and then there's horticultural crops that can have solar panels over the top or, or berries having polytunnels that might be made of solar that um, happens overseas, but we just aren't seeing it in Australia yet. So it's not necessarily a, a new idea, and there are some examples of, uh, of farmers here in Australia who are implementing this already? Yes, so solar grazing, there's a number of operations already, but it's been done on a bit of an ad hoc basis and the solar development wasn't planned and designed for agriculture in mind, so they've had to retrofit a lot of these systems, which means it's more expensive and logistically can be challenging um, because you need internal fencing and you need multiple water troughs to move sheep around to ensure they manage the vegetation well. But in terms of solar panels over horticultural crops, one example on the Tatura Research Farm in Victoria of solar panels over an orchard. Um, But we haven't got any other examples, unfortunately, and that research is desperately needed to to open up that opportunity for farmers. Because I understand that there are places overseas or there are some countries where this is perhaps a bit more advanced, but obviously Australia has its own unique conditions uh, and unique farming practices, so we really need to understand how it is going to apply within our climate. That's right. So there's countries like Japan who grow 120 different crops under solar panels, and that's everything from leafy greens to rice to veggies to flowers. Um, And places like Germany and France also put solar panels over vineyards um, and various orchards. So those um, countries have been able to gather their own research for their climatic zones, but we certainly need the Australian context and various climatic areas within Australia to be understood so we can understand, you know, what's the best crop to grow? How do you set it up? How do we capture water off solar panels? How does the microclimate impact um, the growth of some of those plants? 
Because there are some really great potential benefits of this and, and it has been seen in, in crops overseas. And I know that there's some research, particularly here in Australia, that we've talked about going on with uh, vitivoltaics and the potential oh, yes. benefits for, um, for, for the vineyards being co-located with these solar panels. Yeah, that's right. So research overseas has shown us that when you have partial shading from the solar panels, you get higher soil moisture, uh, less need for irrigation. There's protection from um, frost and hail for things like berries. Um, it can also assist with protection in larger sheep grazing scenarios with protection from excessive heat as well. And like you say, in vineyards, and I know there's a study going on with the University of Adelaide, that partial shade, because grapes are so susceptible to excessive heat and they get damaged, um, the shade can provide benefits in terms of alcohol and sugar content as well. So your report released this week, you've looked at some of the, uh, I guess, potential challenges and opportunities and, and why the uptake has perhaps been a bit slower here in Australia? 100%. So we invited um, government people that are involved in the agrivoltaic area, whether it's early stage or advanced, um, so government reps, farmers, industry and researchers, and we gathered to understand what are the challenges and the real opportunities for Australia and what do we need to kind of progress to go forward. So, you know, more research in terms of um, the Australian context and our, and our different climatic and soil zones. We need funding for demonstration sites and knowledge sharing. Um, best practice guidelines would also be super useful for farmers, operators and developers on how, how they can um, ensure successful um, early stage design um, for better agricultural and energy outcomes in the future as well. We're going to see a pretty massive increase in the number of solar farms in regional Australia. And as you know, you know there's more and more angst in the regions over land use conflict. So this agrivoltaics and um, some of the outcomes of this report show that there's a way to do it, combine agriculture and farming in really positive, beneficial ways if, if they're planned and designed together, not just as an energy development, but, but as an energy and farming development together. And it's really, for me, it's really about reimagining the role of farmers as both producers of food and power. That's Karen Stark. She's the director of Farm Renewables Consulting. Uh, hello to Sean on the text line. His text says, hi, Selena. I hope the wiring is well protected because I've got a car in my dad's paddock and the cows ate the seat cushions, says Sean. Yeah, well, I guess that's all part of the planning process is how to protect uh, the infrastructure if it's uh, co-location or co-locating with, uh, with stock as well. Thanks for your text. It is 11 minutes past 12 and you are with Selena Green today. Well, carbon and nature markets are expanding across the world and credit schemes are being floated as a way for agriculture to help tackle climate change. Food systems will be high on the agenda at this year's Global Climate Conference, COP28, begins this week in Dubai. All this week on ABC Rural, we've been looking at how agriculture is affected by and contributes to climate change. But farmers could also hold some of the solutions to the crisis and Fiona Broom has this report. Trees, soil and nature are recognised as some of the best tools for bringing down global carbon levels. Carbon and nature markets have sprung up in recent years as ways of managing emissions and rewarding conservation. They're broadly known as nature-based solutions. Carbon markets are the most well-established. They offer companies ways to compensate for emissions by reducing or storing carbon elsewhere. Farmers manage half of all the land in Australia, so carbon markets are seen as a potential new revenue stream for agricultural businesses. But are they the best tool for cutting carbon? 
We've got to be very careful when you put value on something like carbon that you don't just end up moving carbon around the landscape and the net result is the atmosphere doesn't benefit. And I think we're seeing too much of that happening already at the moment. Richard Eckard is a professor of sustainable agriculture. We've got to be careful about carbon markets because I think what's happened is the people that are meant to actually get the money are not getting the money as much as they should. You know, the, the brokers are actually achieving most of the gains out of the carbon markets. And in some cases, we're actually shifting deck chairs on the Titanic and not being serious. Farmers want to help mitigate emissions, according to Farmers for Climate Action CEO Natalie Collard. She says producers are receptive to carbon schemes so long as they don't operate in opposition to efforts to tackle climate change. I think like anything new, there's a lot of information that's required. Anything that's developed in terms of new markets, time plays a part in understanding whether they achieve the outcomes that they're um, setting out to do. What we hear from our 8,000 plus farmer members consistently is that they're really first and foremost focused on deep emissions reductions. First and foremost, they want a stable climate so that they can produce a stable food supply and do it profitably and productively. Second to that is that any offset markets are genuinely also supporting that objective and not a perverse outcome. National Farmers Federation President David Johinke says schemes need proper oversight to deliver benefits. What we've seen in some circumstances is blocks of land being purchased for offsetting of carbon being locked up and not being managed at all. We have weeds, we have pests that now live in those landscapes and actually putting pressure on food production outside of their system, let alone not maximising that natural environment that they're claiming as credits. Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance President Tammy Jonas says using agricultural lands to store carbon won't stop emissions from other industries. In the case of carbon markets in particular, you can't have it both ways where um, you pay farmers to sequester carbon, which is a worthy undertaking, and then let them sell those credits to the others who continue emitting at the same levels. It's giving the miners, uh, the extractive industries, a, a get-out-of-jail-free card while the planet burns and they don't reduce emissions. So the food sovereignty movement and Indigenous movements the world over are strongly opposed to nature markets or any market-based solution for sequestering carbon. We could do like Europe does and subsidise farmers rather than fossil fuel companies. There's a novel idea. Professor Richard Eckhart says systems that reward land stewards who are already storing carbon and boosting biodiversity could deliver real benefits. Nature repair markets, I think, are more optimistic for the long-term future. Currently, if you've got low soil carbon, we pay you to become high soil carbon. The, the people that have high soil carbon, we don't reward. Whereas in biodiversity markets, we'd be actually saying, if you've already got high biodiversity, we will recognise and reward that. So I, I think there's a difference between rewarding poor performers to become better, which we shouldn't be paying for, as opposed to rewarding farmers that have already done the right thing. The extreme example of that is if you've got high soil carbon, like most good, well-managed grazing systems would have maxed out on soil carbon already. The incentive is to put in a rotary hoe, plough it up, burn off all the carbon you've got so that you've got low carbon and then engage in a carbon scheme to rebuild it. Um, instead of saying, well, if you've got 5% soil carbon, let's celebrate that and say you've got a wonderful outcome. We, we don't do that. And that's where nature repair markets might be better. As the University of Melbourne Professor of Sustainable Agriculture, Richard Eckerd, Richard Eckerd, ending that report from Fiona Broom.
Well, there are lots of options when it comes to perennial grass on your farm. Down in the southeast, Narracourt Seeds have released results from their three-season perennial grass trial, attempting to find the best and most palatable options for the region. Pasture Seed Advisor for Narracourt Seeds, Dylan Brody, said the trial had shown varied results. Yeah, so that's that's in its third season now, um, and that's got all the perennial grasses that we use in our area, so Phalaris, Coxfoots, um, the summer and winter active fescues, perennial ryegrass, and also a bit of prairie grass. So yeah, it's it's a good thing to have over a few years because you know in the first year we see things like perennial ryegrass really shine as far as yield goes, but you know late season perennial ryegrass in particular struggle to persist in our area. So you know get get through into our third season now we start to see a difference in you know plant densities and and you know we sort of see what what really is going to survive in our area and what is going to be the best look phalaris and you know phalaris has been the backbone probably in the southeast for for a long time and i think it still is you know probably one of the better grasses uh we've seen you know winter active fescues are persisting really well there's 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 been some issues with palatability around that but you know some of the newer varieties you know we use one called medallion and some prosper they they seem to be a bit more palatable to livestock and, and we are learning a bit more about managing those as well so they're, they're persisting really well and, and so is the summer active fescue and and we've probably at our most recent field day uh, we also had a bit more of a focus on coxfoots and and prairie grass prairie grass is something when we planted this trial back in 2021 prairie grass we were just starting to have a look at in our area. It's a biannual plant and, and not something that's been typically used around here. But two years on, we're using more and more and starting to see some really good results. And, and you know, out of our trial site as well, you know, it's a replicated trial. And we're, we were seeing that all of the prairie grass plots are in there thickening up and providing some really valuable winter feed. And then, you know, the, the perennial ryegrass side of things, I guess, you know, some of those are starting to thin out. We have had two pretty kind spring and summer periods since we planted this site uh, we're coming into a bit tighter spring now so th- this this trial is going to stay in for a little while yet and i think we'll you know those that variation from variety to variety will probably only become more over the next few years some of those palatability problems you mentioned with some of the varieties are those new this season or have they been there throughout I think the the fescue thing, you know, probably since it, it came on the scene, it's been a bit of an issue. I think it, it was released as a bit of a saving grace for the southeast, and it's got really good waterlogging tolerance. Um, it, it grows a lot of dry matter, and there's a lot of desirable traits, but managing it to remain palatable is it's it's long been an issue. We had the opportunity to speak with some breeders in Argentina. At, uh, recently and we, we spoke about breeding for a finer leaf and and palatability and they are working away at it but what they did share was that we were on the right track with the medallion uh, in particular they they thought was a more palatable variety and and prosper as well so you were able to share some of these results recently at the field day you mentioned what were some of the responses you got from farmers I think that's one of the great things about a field day is, is the discussion from farmer to farmer because as as we know, every, every paddock's different and everyone's enterprise a little bit different. So what we see and what we like about fescues or coxfoots or whatever it is might not be relevant um, you know, to some others. So I, I do think that um, people were surprised with how well the um, prairie grass had, you know, it's thickened up in time and, and 
the results that we're getting with the winter feed from that and, and also the different varieties of coxfoot that are coming out. It was mentioned that probably in the pasture seed space that there's probably not been as big a gains in any other product as there has been in coxfoots in the last probably five years. Dylan Brody there, pasture seed advisor for Narracourt Seeds, and he was speaking to Elsie Adamo. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. It's a Wednesday, so let's head to the markets now. John Traeger has the Dublin sheep and cattle results. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Quality was fair to good as the agents offered 4,800 lambs and 800 sheep. The yarding presented reasonably well following heavy overnight rain with good competition from the usual buying group and some additional restocker activity seeing prices rise by up to $5 to $10 across the lamb yarding. Hoggets also lifted by a similar amount as mutton prices remained firm to marginally dearer. Extremely light young lambs sold from $26 to $27 as lightweights ranged from $21 to $55. Medium weight lambs sold from 44 to 68 as heavy lambs ranged from 94 to 145 and extreme heavyweights 136 to 145. Extremely light older lambs sold from 26 to 86 as medium weights ranged from 54 to 111. Heavyweights sold from 116 to 134 dollars with extreme heavyweights selling from 130 to 140 dollars per head. Nuggets sold from $38 to $90 as medium ewe mutton sold from $44 to $68 and heavyweights $28 to $45. Meanwhile, in the cattle market, quality was fair to good as agents offered 140 live weight and open auction cattle. The usual trade and process of buyers, especially butchers and restockers, provided generally good competition with all classes selling to a dearer trend. Vila steers sold from 160 to 238 cents, as Vila heifers sold from 182 to 218 cents. Ealing steers sold from 220 to 250 cents, with Ealing heifers ranging from 164 to 204 cents. Grown steers sold from 170 to 220 cents, as grown heifers ranged from 150 to 180 cents. Heavy cows sold from 160 to 180 cents, with heavy bulls selling to 180 cents a kilo. This is John Traker of the South Australian Livestock Exchange for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Thanks, John. And now to Peter Kerr because he's got the latest from the Mount Gambier sale. Afternoon, Peter. Good afternoon, Selena. This is the Mount Gambier cattle report for 29th of November. Numbers rose a little at Mount Gambier, so she shouted 1,687 head of live weight and open auction cattle. Beef sold to a larger field of trade and processor buyers who all competed strongly for supply across a good quality offering with weight and condition in most pens. Feelers made up a large percentage of the offering as the market reacted to recent rainfall to be much dearer over most categories. Feelers steers to the trade made from 205 to 275 cents with a lift of mainly 6 to 20 cents. Similar heifers returned from 170 to 250 cents a kilogram. Feeders sought heifers from 175 to 220 cents as restockers operated on steers to 260 and heifers to 210 cents a kilogram. Yearling steers lifted 10 cents to sell from 214 to 244 cents as similar heifers ranged from 216 to 240 cents a kilogram. Feeders are active here from 205 to 254 cents on steers and on heifers to 216. Grown steers and bullocks rose up to 20 cents. They sold from 225 to 252 cents to the trade, 
Feed is active from 223 to 266 with a rise of 30 cents a kilogram on those cattle. Crow and heifer saw a lift of 35 cents to sell from 214 to 240 cents to the trade as manufacturing steers jumped 40 cents to range from 180 to 227 cents a kilogram. Heavy cows also spiked by 40 cents to range from 218 to 239 cents. Lighter lots returned from 180 to 202 with bulls ranging from 172 to 220 cents a kilogram. This has been Peter Kerr for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you, Peter. It's 25 minutes past 12. Let's head to the Weather Bureau now and Simon Timke, our forecaster again today. Hi, Simon. G'day, Selena. So it seems a little bit calmer, certainly, than it was this time yesterday. It certainly is. Uh, the trough uh, of low pressure that produced all that weather over the uh, south of the state uh, yesterday has moved eastwards and uh, and produced some pretty significant rainfall totals over um, New South Wales and uh, parts of Victoria and Queensland. Uh, left a fair bit of cloud over the south of SA, which has largely started to, to break up a bit over sort of more inland parts of the south and starting to see a little bit more sunshine there. But the cloud has persisted a bit more about some of the coastal and, and eastern districts. Uh, Mostly dry over the south today. I think there's a, a chance there could be the odd isolated light shower about the southern agricultural area, but, but very isolated and not expected to, uh, to produce any significant rainfall totals. Um, further north, there's quite a bit of clear sky, uh, but in the far north and far west, we are seeing fairly extensive areas of middle and high level cloud. And there are some uh, isolated thunderstorms developing right up in the far northwest of the state. And I think during the day today, we'll see those uh, showers and, and isolated thunderstorms extend a little bit further east and southwards, so that the, the far west uh, and the northwest of the state likely to see a bit of shower and, and thunderstorm activity. Some of those storms in the far northwest could be severe, with some potential for some locally heavy rainfall uh, and and damaging winds uh, but at this point we're, we're monitoring and uh, there are no warnings current for, for that at this point. Over the next couple of days we'll, we'll see that weather uh, in the, the northwest gradually um, contract eastwards. Uh, so for, for Thursday we're forecasting uh, showers and isolated thunderstorms over the north and west of the state uh, and like today in the far northwest a chance that some of those thunderstorms could be um, severe again. So do keep an eye out for, for warnings over that northwestern part of SA. Uh, further south uh, on Thursday, like today, the odd isolated light shower um, about southern coasts and ranges, but not expecting any significant rainfall totals and they certainly won't be too widespread. Uh, on Friday, the, the weather in the north will contract gradually northeastwards, so we'll see um, showers and, and isolated thunderstorms in the north east of about Cooper gradually contracting eastwards to clear late in the day. Further south, once again, the odd um, light isolated light shower about southern coasts and ranges. Uh, over the weekend, mostly dry conditions. The weather in the north will have cleared away, so, so dry conditions over the north. Isolated uh, light showers about the southern agricultural area again for Saturday, mostly about southern coasts and ranges and again in insignificant rainfall totals. Sunday I think dry right across the state. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday mostly dry and starting to get pretty hot 
uh, early next week. I think Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we'll see maximum temperatures in the low 40s across widespread areas of the north. Uh, not as hot further south, but certainly warmer than we've had over the last few days. So starting mm-hmm. to see some, some uh, more summery sort of temperatures developing early next week. As far as the rainfall totals go for that period out to the end of Sunday, uh, much drier than the last couple of days, generally expecting less than two millimetres about the southern agricultural area with those light showers, uh, and again, mostly about southern coasts and ranges. Further north, two to ten millimetres uh, generally across the north and west, with some local higher falls reaching ten to twenty millimetres, uh, and then isolated falls possible in the north and west of the northwest pastoral district possibly reaching 20 to 40 millimetres with those thunderstorms or possibly even a little bit more than that with a with a heavier severe thunderstorm so for the south of the state not too much and a little bit of weather over the north and west selena Thanks for that, Simon. Simon Timkey, our forecaster today at the Weather Bureau. For the upper western and lower western parts of New South uh, Wales, the western inland parts of New South Wales, for tomorrow, mostly sunny for the upper western, partly cloudy for the lower. Winds are west to southwesterlies, 15 to 25 k's now. They'll pick up to around 20 to 30 k's now towards the middle of the day. Overnight, temperatures getting down into the mid-teens. Daytime, they'll reach up into the mid-20s to around 30 degrees. It's half past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Good afternoon. Great to be with you. And you're about to hear from some folks who are very happy when they heard this over their roofs overnight. That was recorded in the far west of New South Wales along the South Australian border where dry earth has been pounded by heavy rains and for some farmers in that area there's few complaints. You're going to meet some of those in a moment. And you'll also get to meet South Australia's first cherry queen. Does she get a crown? Well, you'll have to stick around to find out. But first, here's your news update from Matt Coleman. Hello, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, South Australia's Attorney-General Kaya Ma says the government is open to setting up a royal commission into domestic, family and sexual violence in SA. The Greens and SA Best will this afternoon introduce a motion to Parliament's upper house, calling on the government to set up the inquiry after the deaths of four women last week. Mr Ma says the government will consider a royal commission, but says that the government is working already to prevent domestic violence. Significant rental reforms are set to pass the Parliament this afternoon. Under the changes, landlords will only be able to enter tenancy for a prescribed reason, including breaches by the tenant wanting to sell or move into the property. Landlords will also have to give tenants 60 days' notice before ending a tenancy agreement instead of the current 28, and they'll also be prevented from refusing pets without good reason. And South Australia is set to ban the display of the Nazi salute. The Attorney-General Kaya Ma says legislation will be introduced this week preventing the display of the Nazi symbol or salute. Offenders will face significant fines and a maximum penalty of up to a year in jail. More news at one o'clock. 
Thank you, Matt. Matt Coleman with those news updates. Well, the federal government now has the support it needs in the Senate to pass its reforms to the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Glenn Jasper has filed this report. This morning, ACT Independent Senator David Pocock announced he'll support the government's legislation, joining Victorian Senator David Van and the Greens to secure the numbers for the bill in the Senate. Mr Pocock's support came after he secured a $50 million package for the Upper Murrumbidgee River. That will include river restoration work, more monitoring and, and science, and really importantly, a, a review of the... Sweeoid, the agreement that the Upper Murrumbidgee flows are, are governed by with, with Snowy Hydro, New South Wales and, and Victoria. In addition, David Pocock also secured $500,000 to support First Nations to participate in water releases from the high country. For too long, First Nations people have been left out of conversations around water. Conversations about how water should be used and managed and then access to water to use it and to manage it on their country. The bill, when passed, will remove the 1,500 gigalitre cap on buybacks legislated by the Coalition, allowing the government to buy water off farmers in the basin to meet the plan's recovery targets, including the additional 450 gigalitres of environmental water. It also gives all basin states except Victoria until 2026 to complete their sustainable diversion limit adjustment mechanism projects. However, following amendments to the bill by the Greens, it also gives the federal government the power to withdraw projects they deem unviable. A vote on the legislation is likely in the coming days. Clint Jasper with that update. Uh, sticking with the Murray-Darling Basin plan, and farmers would have the option to lease rather than sell water to the environment under changes to the plan currently before the federal parliament. Leasebacks are the latest amendment to the Restoring Our Rivers bill, which, if approved, would extend the deadline on existing Murray-Darling Basin plan and permit the use of Commonwealth water buybacks to meet water-saving targets. The federal water minister, Tanya Plibersek, announced the option of leasebacks as independent Victorian Senator David Van offered his support for the legislation. And here's a little of their press conference announcing the amendments yesterday. Senator Van raised with me that he had some concerns about the social and economic impacts of voluntary water purchase. And so I've agreed to two important changes to the bill. And the first is to make it very clear that leasing water rather than buying it is an option available to us to achieve the targets in the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. I've said all along that voluntary water purchase is not the only tool in the box, that we are looking at on-farm and off-farm efficiency measures uh, and a range of other options. And uh, with this clarification about leasing, that puts another option on the table. Senator Van has also asked me to clarify that I will consider the social and economic impacts of any water purchasing program and that I will report to the Parliament annually about the way that I have considered uh, any such impacts, and I've agreed to that amendment as well. Senator Van asked for another amendment, which was for me to retain the cap of 1,500 gigalitres of water to be purchased, and I'm not able to do that. That would fundamentally change what I'm proposing to do with the Restoring Our Rivers Bill, which is to put more options on the table, not to take options off the table when it comes to achieving the objectives of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. 
Uh, Senator Van and I have had uh, good discussions about his concerns. He doesn't agree with everything in this bill, I think it's fair to say. And he was particularly raising his concerns about how this may impact dairy farmers and rice growers. And I have sought to give him assurances about how we will minimise any social and economic impacts of voluntary water purchase and how I will continue to say voluntary water purchase is not the only tool in the box when it comes to delivering the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. We're looking at all options. I want to take a common sense approach to delivering on the objectives of the plan. I've said consistently that there is something for everyone in this bill. Extending the timelines for delivery of water saving infrastructure projects, making sure that there is social and economic structural adjustment funding available, making sure that we finally deliver for the environment in the way we've been promising to do for a decade. There is something for everyone in the Restoring Our Rivers Bill and with these sensible amendments I believe we've strengthened the bill further and uh, I want to thank the Senator for the constructive way he's worked. Uh, thank you Minister. This bill is important because it will deliver water to our rivers. What the amendments I've done in this bill do is it allows a bit more flexibility in how the CHU can get water entitlements. So by leasing, it takes away some of the damaging impacts that buybacks have. By losing that in-perpetuity part of it that goes with a buyback, farmers are more likely to want to lease their water back to the Commonwealth holder of environmental water. Uh, and it gives them flexibility to their business. That leasing term might be 12 months, could be five years, could be 30 years. But that allows the CHU to hold that water as an entitlement, as an asset on their books, which then they can use for environmental reasons. The second part about being able to uh, consult, consider and report to the Parliament makes it clear that the, the Minister will, as I believe she will, look at the socio-economic impact of what the buybacks and leasebacks are doing and enable the whole of Parliament to be assured that the, the right things are being done by the rivers and by the communities that feed off it. Victorian Senator David Van and Federal Water Minister Tanya Plibersek there. And as you heard just before, the federal government now has the support it needs in the Senate to pass its reforms to the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and a, voted, a vote is expected very soon. It is 22 minutes to one here on the Country Hour today with Selena Green. Uh, the cleanup is continuing across parts of the far west of New South Wales after the storm brought some record-breaking rain, hail and damaging winds in recent days. There's been reports of 30 mils through to 104 mils at Ivanhoe, with Sunset Strip near Menindi turning into a snowfield and the golf course there underwater. But there are a few complaints from landholders who haven't seen such rain for a long time. Barb Arnold owns Bindara on the Darling. It's located on the west side of the Darling River between Menindi and Punkara. She told Andrew Schmidt that she's very happy with the 52 mils of rain that fell at her place. Yesterday we did. We didn't get quite the snow effect that they got though, but um, <laughs> we had 19 mils of rain with it and we, when we had hail, we had a bit of hail as well. Only lasted for 10 minutes and it was all over. Mm-hmm. My tap turned off and then um, overnight, oh my gosh. Um, after midnight, around about 1 o'clock, it was absolutely hosing down as it was a Menindi, so I saw... Um, on uh, Karen Pages, it was hosing. Oh mate, <laughs> hosing's never a good. Going to stop. <laughs> hosing's a good word. Uh, Bob, all up. Do you, do you know how much you received this week? Yeah, fifty-two mils, mate. Wow. Uh, and like we sat there, didn't we, for months and months, and we were told hot, 
dry, don't expect any rain, and bang. And I'm worried about fires and doing fire breaks and slashing and, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> what, what does it mean for you? It's worse after the <laughs> What does it mean for your place, uh, Barbara, leading into summer? Oh, look, it'll just give it a, a, a breath of fresh air, to say the very, very least. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. What was it looking like before the rain? It had dried off really, really badly. Um, still plenty of feed there, but um, the fire danger, in my mind, was very, very high. Just didn't know where we were going to go with that one. Fire breaks and slashing, you know, near the house and you know, trying to put a big gap between there and there in case, you know, we only needed a storm sort of in a lightning yeah. strike or a cigarette or anything, and away it would go. Yeah. Uh, what do you got on the property at the moment, Barb? What sort of stock are you running? Look, we're only running goats at the moment, mm. so, um, yeah, they, they haven't really been filling up all the things that they needed to do. <laughs> What's uh, the river looking like at the moment? Um, yesterday it was up a bit, so, yeah, I think they did another re- a release. So, yeah, it's, it's, it was up and looking quite good. Mm. Yeah. Well, Barb, look, that's great news. As I said, it's been very much hit and miss, hasn't it? I mean, you, you can get this and your next-door neighbour can get not much at all, but uh, let's hope that most got a bit of a drink out of this. Well, I think... Considering uh, it was raining in, in Manitou at the same time it was raining here, I'm, I'm thinking that this was not just a cell. Like yesterday was just basically a cell. They had these cells dropping here and there randomly, but um, I think it was more intense overnight and sort of covered a wider, longer area. Yeah. Uh, like, no, it's beautiful. We can handle it all for sure. I'm not complaining. That's Barb Arnold speaking with Andrew Schmidt. Well, Angus White from Wyndham Station between Wentworth and Broken Hills said the rain that fell was expected, but not to the extent that it did. We've had just over 50 mils at the at Wyndham Lily, and uh, we've had uh, 84 at our other property at Willow Point, just north of here. So a bit patchy. Either way, just a absolutely fantastic rain. Were you expecting this rain to to be coming? Certainly, it was forecast. Um, however, when you see a forecast for like 30 to 70 mils when it's been quite dry in the lead up to it, you. I certainly view it with a fair bit of scepticism and go, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it in the rainwater tank. And we've seen it. And and that doesn't always happen. And look, I don't think... You don't have to go far south from here and and uh, they didn't get anywhere near the rain we've got. So I think uh, Mildura got 20 mils. Uh, and between here and Mildura, I'm hearing reports of, you know, probably 12 mils, 13 mils, that sort of number. When it came in, what did it look like? Was it pretty heavy and did you get hail with it? Oh, we didn't get any hail, I don't think. It was certainly really heavy, like it was just, I don't know, what would you call it? Very wet rain, like it was just coming straight down and there was just sheets of it. And was it sort of lasted quite a while? Yeah, it did. Like it, we had eight mils up until yesterday morning, especially for the for the morning here. It was really pelting down at times and there was lots of thunder and lightning and it was really cracking wild storms, you know. And dogs were frightened and wanted to come inside and, yeah, all that sort of stuff. Was it pretty well balanced, like, across your property, do you think? Like, quite even coverage? I seriously can't tell you that, Lily. I haven't I haven't really left, left the house. It's just been too wet. The roads and everything are looking pretty muddy? Yeah, they are, and I, we don't want to wreck them anymore. I might, I might uh, see if I can tiptoe out the motorbike later on today and uh, have a look around. That'd be, that'd be something I'd enjoy doing as long as I don't get bogged. Heading into the summer months, it set you up pretty well? Absolutely beautiful. I, you know, we were certainly 
getting a little bit dry here. We had um, 15 mils last week, which was beautiful. You know, we were certainly looking for a bit more. So this is magnificent, and it's just going to give us green grass for Christmas, which is a magnificent present. Do you think this is the last of the rains before it really starts to heat up? You would certainly say a significant rainfall event like this for us is, is a change from the norm because we've gone through quite a dry period from August through to now. And, uh, yeah, we were well below par for our yearly average rainfall and this will put us around or even just exceed our average rainfall now. Um, and there's no reason why, you know, moisture attracts moisture. There's no reason why it couldn't continue. We couldn't have a couple more systems come through before the end of the year. I just really hope that those people that didn't get under storms, uh, we do have some more systems come through that fill some of those gaps in because you really feel for your friends and there's plenty of people around that are, are still fairly dry. It'd be nice to see smiles on people's faces because as you're well aware, Lily, like it's, it's tough times in the livestock industry with low prices. Uh, it'd be great if people at least had some good grass. As Angus White there from Wyndham Station and he was speaking there to Lily McEwer. If you'd love to see some stunning aerial shots of all the water now lying around that part of the country, you can hop onto the ABC Broken Hills Facebook page. There's a couple on there. They're just gorgeous, really beautiful to see and the sun's uh, glinting off the water there in those shots. So hop on the ABC Broken Hill Facebook page and uh, check them out. December 3 is International Day of People with Disability, where we recognise the contributions and achievements of the over 4 million Australians with disability. Hi there, I'm former Sydney Swan, Barnaby Howard. I've been living with acquired disability since having a stroke in 2005. And with content right across the ABC, on radio, TV and online, I invite you to join us in recognising the value that people with disability add to the world every day. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. With Selena Green, it's 14 minutes to one. Well, Australia is swimming in wine in the sense that there's a massive oversupply across the country. And given the challenging conditions for the industry and big shifts in global trends and export markets, well, what can Australian wine producers do about it? Perhaps the answer is looking at how other agricultural industries have dealt with similar issues. Rabobank's Pia Piggott wrote the report Swimming in Wine. She's speaking at this week's Wine Industry Impact Conference, which is being held in Adelaide, and she's talking about how the industry can restructure. I spoke with Pia and asked her just how much wine there is across the country. We have over 875 Olympic-sized swimming pools worth of wine in storage in Australia, and of course, not all of that is oversupply, but a lot of that is. We've seen over the past three years, we've had a series of unfortunate events in the wine industry, which has left a huge glut of wine in Australia. We've had anti-dumping tariffs from China. Uh, we've had record production uh, in 2021. And we've also had a lot of logistics bottlenecks with COVID, which have meant that we haven't been able to grow our exports and get ourselves out of the glut. And from what I'm hearing, there's also been quite a bit of a shift in uh, drinking behaviours in that meantime as well as that contributed a bit to the build-up? Yeah, definitely. In uh, Australia, we've seen a stabilisation of consumption, um, but that's also accounting for increasing population. So where if our expectations are that in the future there'll be decreasing consumption per capita, but uh, the 
rise in population will account for that. Uh, so consumption stable in Australia. However, different trends are happening globally. Uh, we know in China, which is, was one of our biggest markets, uh, they've had quite significant declines in wine consumption as well. Uh, so as we see, particularly in the bulk wine segment, declines in consumption and moving towards the premium end of wine. From what I've heard from a number of quarters is for exporters not to expect that the Chinese will purchase and consume as much Australian wine as they have in the past. That's not going to be a solution for this oversupply problem. Yeah, exactly. So they haven't actually announced that the tariff is going to be removed. They're just going through an off-ramping process at the moment from their WTO dispute. And we expect that sometime in March we'll get a decision um, to whether they're going to remove the tariffs. Despite this, wine consumption in China has actually been decreasing. So even prior to COVID, we saw declines in um, total wine consumption in China. That's from imports and domestic production. And if you look at the top 10 importing countries of wine into China, only one of them was able to grow over the past few years, and that's Argentina. Um, they were able to grow volume, and but that was because they had really competitive prices. So if Australia is going to grow in China, um, particularly as they're quite price sensitive at their moment, um, they're going to have to be competitive and they're going to have to really invest a lot into um, rebuilding that market share. So what about other market opportunities? I know a lot of um, you know, exporters are now looking to other countries that might take some of this wine. What are some of the, the potential and, and emerging markets for this? Yeah, so we have seen some growth areas in Southeast Asia. However, they're much smaller markets than our major export uh, destinations. Most of the wine currently is now, um, our major markets now currently are really the US and the UK. Uh, the UK, we've seen um, a bit of a slip in exports and particularly as they've implemented new wine duties, which are particularly going to increase alcohol duty rates for the typical bottle of Australian wine by around 20%. So because Australian wine is on average on the higher um, alcohol percentage side, we're going to be seeing a quite a significant increase in alcohol duties in the UK of about 20% for Australian wine. And so um, this is actually greater than the new Australia-UK FTA agreement, which had a benefit of a zero tariff. So they're worse under these new regulations and will put further margin pressure on um, growth in the UK. Um, and as well in the US, we've seen growth in the US on a volume term, but that's because we're sending more bulk wine to the US. So mm. we haven't been able to grow as much on value. That we're seeing now there's a, been a rapid slowdown in consumer demand in the wine space, particularly um, in those wines priced below 15 US dollars a bottle. So they're also dealing with an oversupply problem. Right. So it's not, it's a simple fix of finding another market or a couple of markets uh, to, to replace China. So this, I imagine, is going to for some soul-searching and some restructuring of how things are done here in Australia going forward? Yeah, it's been a really difficult few years and we've seen some optimism with the potential tariff removal. However, uh, we're still expecting that the oversupply will continue for the next few years, even if the tariff is removed and we're able to grow our market share back in China. Uh, it's also important to note that we're expecting to see some acreage reduced. Um, so 
We're expecting that that will happen. However, if the tariff is removed and there's more optimism in that China market, we could see acreage reduced by less than our forecast. So looking at your presentation as part of the the Wine um, Impact Conference uh, this week here in Adelaide, I understand you're going to be looking at perhaps some other agricultural industries have also addressed uh, oversupply issues and how that might apply to, uh, to the wine industry here? Yeah, definitely. We're going to look a little bit at what's happened with barley because barley's also uh, had tariffs from China around the same time as wine. And we're going to be exploring a little bit about how they had that off-ramping process with their governments and how that's led to the removal of the tariff on barley. However, it's not uh, the panacea to the industry. Pia Piggott there from Rabobank, and she is the author of the recent report, Swimming in Wine. It is eight minutes to one. You're with Selena Green. And finally today, we get to meet our first cherry queen. Yes, South Australia has its first cherry queen. To kick off the local cherry season, pick a local pick SA and the South Australian produce markets have auctioned off this season's first box of cherries. And it's all to raise money for Variety, the children's charity. So earlier this morning, a group of retailers, growers and producers bid amongst themselves to score the cherries and also the illustrious title of Cherry King or Queen. I've told we've had a long list of Cherry Kings here in South Australia, but up until now, no Queens. Well, this year's winner was expected to pay more than $10,000 a kilo for a five kilogram box of cherries. The winning bid was a whopping $60,000, and it came from South Australian Produce Market Board member Christine Scalzi. I gave her a call shortly after the auction early this morning to say congratulations. Oh, good morning and thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> I'm feeling very regal today. <laughs> I, I hope so. Do you do you get a crown? Does the Cherry Queen get a crown? Got, by the way? I'm, I'm actually wearing a crown and a cake. <laughs> Fantastic. How wonderful. Um, So you've bid uh, successfully for the cherries this morning. Just how much do you get for your winning bid? Um, I get the five kilo box of cherries and I also feel that, I don't know, I think it's a lot more than that. I feel very honoured and um, happy to be um, supporting the variety because it's for families with children with disadvantages and I don't know. For me, it's very close to my heart. Being a mum, you you know, you always want the best for your children. So I think, you know, donating sixty thousand dollars is it's a great cause, and it'll go to a lot of families in need, which makes me really happy and proud. Wonderful. I mean, yeah, this is obviously a lot of fun and you get some cherries as a bonus, but this is so much more than just about the cherries. This is obviously a a, a lot of fun, but a great way to, to raise some money for a great charity. Yeah, and it also it's uh, it's great for our industry because it's today's the official launch of cherry seasons, and obviously with the festive season approaching, you know, and it's great because we the cherries are from um, Shrubbelo orchards in the Adelaide Hills, so we we you know we're really promoting the, the growers in the Adelaide Hills that you know with the weather at the moment struggle as well, so. Mm-hmm. It's great. No, it's really good. And um, obviously with the produce market there, cherries are a big draw card as well for consumers to come in and they'll be getting some some good supplies of those now heading into Christmas. Yes, that's right. And, you know, obviously it is um, cherries. I mean, Christmas is nothing without cherries, really. If you think about it, every every household would have a a bowl of cherries on their Christmas table for for Christmas Day. So it's really nice because they're starting to come through now and they look really, really lovely.
Uh, so you've got quite a few on your head. Are you a fan of cherries? Uh, do you like that yes. cherries that much? Yes, I, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, like, because uh, the girls were saying downstairs, oh, what are you going to do with your cherries? And I don't know. I've been up since four, so I'm feeling a bit peckish now. I might go home and make some cherry pancakes. They sound good. Beautiful. And I think you get a chance <laughs> to, uh, as part of your win, um, Callum Han, who um, most people would remember from uh, his season in MasterChef. I think he's yes. doing a bit of a cook-up of some um, some pancakes with the cherries as well? Yeah, well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's on the card. No, he's, he's lovely. And he's always helping out with uh, Pick a Local and the South Australian produce market. So he's, he's a great ambassador for our industry. Fantastic. Well, Christine, enjoy your cherries. Enjoy your reign as Cherry Queen. And the first... I believe, as well, uh, the yes, first queen. I think I, well, as far as I know, I'm the first probably in a decade, I think. But, yeah, it's great. Fantastic. It's great to have more women girl power, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Equal opportunity when it comes to the cherry I can actually say that bottom. this morning because I've got a crown on my head. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I would make the most use of that while, while exactly, you have it. Exactly, that's right. <laughs> use that power wisely. But uh, congratulations, Christine, and well done on your fantastic bid, uh, that money going to a wonderful charity Variety SA, and I'm sure it will make a huge That's difference. Right, yeah. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Christine Scalzi, the director of Scalzi Produce and South Australia's newly crowned Cherry Queen. I hope she's still wearing that crown and enjoying it. Um, as you heard, uh, we heard the other day from Cherries SA that uh, that hail last week did uh, destroy the first flush of uh, crop for some growers, cherry growers in the hills, uh, but uh, this stage shouldn't affect local supply as we head into Christmas. Uh, if you'd like to read more about that and the impact of uh, the recent heavy rains on some different crops around the country where those storm system did move through, things like lentils, wheat, potatoes as well. Hop on to the ABC Rural website. There's a great article on there right now that you can read uh, from some of those different industries about what it means for them uh, at this time of the year to get that amount of rain. It's abc.net.au forward slash rural. So you can hop on to check that out. While you're on there, there's a lot of great stories to read, including a really wonderful story uh, about Henry, who was a border collie with a very particular job. Uh, He is one of very few precious canines who can single out and smell out a Chinese violet which is an invasive weed. So um, Henry has a very, very special job to do, a very clever boy. So if you'd like to go and read Henry's story and see his photo, a beautiful dog, great smile, um, and find out more about the Chinese violet that his job is to sniff out, hop onto that website, abc.net.au forward slash rural. Conversations. Spend an hour in the life of someone else. We were ultimately living two lives. The magic was when Chris and Daniel and I played together. That's what made Silverchair so special. Someone who has seen and done remarkable things. When I got off the plane, the reception made me fall in love with this country. People didn't see a black man. People saw a human being. Hear the latest conversations. Weekday mornings from 11 on ABC Radio. Or anytime on the ABC Listen app. We've just got enough time to check out what Sonia Feldhoffs has got on her program today. Hi, Sonia. Hello, Selena. Yes, today we're taking a look at the new laws that take effect from next year in South Australia, and that is banning the Nazi salute and swastikas. How will that all work and who's been involved in that decision? We'll take a look at that. And today, you've got to know him over the last 20 years uh, on the evenings program. Peter Gers obviously preparing for his final show, but how much do you really know about him? You're going to be tested in two truths and a lie today. <laughs> with Peter as our centrepiece. Fantastic. What a great send-off. That's with Sonia this afternoon. That and much, much more. Thanks for your company. It's news time, one o'clock.
The ABC Listen app lets you take ABC Radio with you wherever you go. At home, in the gym, up a ladder, on the road, interstate, out of space. Download the ABC Listen app today. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.